Are you guys DTR? Yeah. DTR. Yeah, record. <laughs> <laughs> She's so DTR. I don't know. I'm a weirdo. No. No, you're not. I mean, yeah. I like bitch. it a good one. I'm a lover. I'm a child. I like how you started singing with me, but like a full measure ahead of me. (laughs) No, I was just singing in harmony and I, in my head, it was with you, but maybe there's a delay. (laughs) There's a delay between your head and, and space and time. I mean, that's literally been my life for the last month. So. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh my god let it out let it out yeah it's unsettling but necessary yeah sorry <laughs> all right all right we ready that should be for the this? title of your biography or autobiography oh it's tell me it. but unsettling but necessary <laughs> yeah i think that's pretty accurate i think that that'll be it that's it <laughs> kind of describes just being alive yeah yeah well this is weird but anyway (laughs) pretty pretty necessary guess i'll keep going hello welcome to season of the bitch the perfect synthesis of socialism and feminism did you just say cynicism? <laughs> today we have Ambria, Laura, Hope, and Kellen. And today we are talking about dialectical materialism. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Uh, you know I'm a nerd because those words just fill me up with the warm fuzzies. <laughs> I was like, I'm so excited to talk about dialectical materialism. It's like if you could have an ideological Snuggie, like this would be it. <laughs> well, like, because, you know, Hegel, Hegel, Hegel. <laughs> We're off to he, a great start with the words. He had Hegel, 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 Hegel. Hegel. It's like Kegels, but Hegel. Hegel. Like when <laughs> Wait, I've been saying Kegels. It's Kegel? Yeah, no, it's perfect. Kegel. Ugh. Well, either way, <laughs> his idea would be anyway, I'm just saying the the snuggy is the material, but the thought process <laughs> Okay. Moving on. I can't wait. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, I can't wait to see where this goes. That's not going anywhere. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, Laura, I got a question for you. Wow, thank you. I'm we're so ready to answer. <laughs> what do you What do you think uh, dialectical materialism is? Oh my goodness, I am so glad you asked this question. <laughs> um, what a surprise! <laughs> So I think of dialectical materialism as a philosophical and scientific approach to understanding reality. Mm. So 
This approach interprets the entire world and all of its contents as a process in constant motion, change, development, and importantly, internal conflict. So objects, societies, and organisms are all seen as evolving entities that interact and conflict with each other. Dialectical materialism, developed by Marx and Engels, place a focus on quote-unquote real material things that take up shape as a basis for the study of dialectics. This is in contrast with Hegel's Hegel. Dial, Hegel, Hegel. With, his, with his dialectical idealism, which places the ideal as the genesis and main engine of dialectic movement. So critics often note that Hegel's focus on ideas and ideals is similar to ideas of God. He had the, like this idea of like the highest ideal and people were like, you're just talking about what God means to people. And he wasn't necessarily interested in material conditions. To Marx, ideals are a reflection of material conditions. Huh. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I love the history of the term. I geeked out a lot uh, researching it before this episode, and I was super excited to be thinking about it just after seeing the young Karl Marx, because Brandon and I were talking about it a lot after we watched it. It's good. Um, It's really fun. So I think Marx and Engels definitely had some issues with the ways that Hegelian philosophy was being used at the time, mostly stemming from it being used to incorrectly explain social injustices. And that's kind of the thing that stuck out to me. I'm actually going to break down what Laura said a little bit further because she's already said so much in in that short span of time. So to explain what Laura just said a little bit more, one thing that both Hegel and Marx were getting at is that there's me, a person, and there's the outside world made up of other people, governments, other social systems, and plants and animals and physical laws. And I act on the world. But the world also acts on me. Mm-hmm. Um, and once again, this is both Marx and Hegel. So when I'm thinking and then I put my thought into action, but it doesn't go as planned, I learned something about my theory because the outside world showed me all of the little or really big things that I didn't think of initially and my ideas start to grow. Hegel was really into God and national governments and patriarchs and stuff like that. Um, when Laura says, and I'm going to quote what she just said a minute ago directly, She said that Marx was in contrast with, quote, Hegel's dialectical idealism, which places the ideal as the genesis and main engine of dialectic movement. So that means that Hegel saw these large systems like the government or God's creation and maintenance of the world as being what human experience is after this back and forth that I have when I'm confronted with reality. So this is literally part of his explanation for what human consciousness is. Just to be clear about what his philosophy is about. So Marx, on the other hand, saw this process as being even more complicated. And it's commonly said that Marx turned Hegel on his head. So I guess you can kind of think about Marx flipping Hegel's idea upside down. But I think, once again, it's a little more complicated than that. But Marx said that this back and forth process isn't just following some ideal system created outside of ourselves. That actually humans shape their environment. But then that environment that we create shapes us in turn and back and forth and back and forth. So we as humans have the power to shape an environment that creates the kind of human experience we think we should have, a human experience that is just and fulfilling, um, and also arguably actually allows us to take that action of building our environment. 
So one thing that Marx talks about a lot is being cut off from that natural process as being limiting to our humanity. And we can start to see how that leads to the idea that workers who literally produce our physical environment and all the things in it actively fulfilling our physical needs for humanity, he thinks those workers should have a say over how those things are produced and how their workplaces are structured. Um, and Laura's going to go into that more in a few minutes. Hell yeah. <laughs> Wow, we are really just, you know, breaking this down. It is so complicated. So even if you're listening to this and you're like, uh, what the actual fuck? It's like, that's fine. Listen to it like five more times and then maybe you'll get a fraction of it and that's cool. So a philosophical contention of dialectics is that in the abstract, each entity called a thesis contains its opposite, its antithesis. So the thesis and the antithesis are in a dialectical relationship in that they conflict with one another and over time combine into something new, a synthesis, mm. or as Ambria called it, a synth. wait, a, th- a synthesism. <laughs> <laughs> yes, perfect. So uh, the synthesis then becomes the new thesis and adopts its own antithesis and the movement continues indefinitely. And another simpler way to put this could be to say an idea and its opposite. The back and forth Mm -hmm. between an idea and its contradiction created a new, better idea, which we can call a synthesis. I um, actually like to pronounce it synthesis and antithesis, just to make it linguistically clear that these terms are all derivative of the thesis. So thesis, synthesis, antithesis. So far, this pronunciation has uh, not caught on in the academic philosophy community, but I am working on it. Yeah, I really don't understand why, because that's like pure gold. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so the act of production is the basis of how societies provide the material resources for its survival, and the relationships surrounding the means of production and the conflict amongst them are the objects of a dialectical materialist study of society. It's a whole lot right there, but (laughs) because, because dialectic inquiry is inherently historical, any study of society needs to be informed by history. So when Marx says, quote, the history of all hitherto ex- existing society is the history of class struggles, he is outlining an understanding of history that is informed by dialectical materialism, a.k.a. historical materialism. At some point in history, human beings became able to produce more than they needed to immediately consume. So question, is this related to agriculture and the ability to specifically produce and store food? I'm not 100% sure, but I feel like, so it's sort of. It can also be outside of the food realm. Like Marx is obsessed (laughs) with the analogy of linens and coats. (laughs) So you could think about it in terms of clothing too. So instead of just making what you need to survive on any level, whether it's shelter and clothing in survival terms, at least is considered part of shelter because it shields you from the elements and exposure or food. So I think that it's when you're not just immediately producing what you need to survive on like a plethora of different levels. I don't know if that answers it well, but I'm also guessing at that 
no one hold me to that. (laughs) Yeah, so Laura, I was thinking um, earlier when you were describing like the comfiest theory that you could be wrapped in, I was thinking about asking you uh, how many yards of linen it takes to create a dialectical materialism snuggie, because it just seems like that's (laughs) that's the kind of question Marx would have asked, I feel, you know? Absolutely, he would be super into it. So at that moment, when humans became able to produce more than they needed to immediately consume, society became a class society, where one class gained control of the surplus that was produced. The class that controlled the production became the ruling class. Examples of this class relation to the means of production are master and slave, lord and serf, worker and capitalist. These conflicting classes are the dialectical thesis and antithesis that make up a society. Yes. (laughs) Society has been and remains based on this class exploitation. We can also think about why historical materialism would task us to look at history more broadly, right? Instead of just as the story of a few great men, when we consider the differences we've discussed between Marx and Hegel, history as a project of figuring out exactly how our reality has been pieced together by what came before, instead of a grand narrative leading up to something planned by God or inevitable due to a natural progression. Yeah, that's like really well said, Ambria. You sure you don't want to be a history teacher? (laughs) (laughs) I actually will be a history teacher because as a grade school teacher, I'll be teaching all of the subjects. Oh, very neat. Which is one reason, one of the many reasons I chose grade school. Kids will be lucky to have you. Oh, (laughs) too true. So in thinking about what Ambria just said, I love the emphasis Marx places on using this to help find ways to create change as opposed to just a ton of thinking and reasoning only to basically come to the conclusion that things are predetermined. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is uh, probably not surprising, but I really like this discussion because history <laughs> is really important here. I also think that it's it can be helpful to sort of contrast dialectical materialism with other ways of looking at history that some other listeners might be familiar with. So I know a lot about U.S. history specifically and kind of the way that it's been thought about and talked, and some of this will probably sound familiar to y'all. So like a couple of versions of history, of looking at history that have really dominated in American history Uh, I'm using the word history a lot here, sorry in advance, are consensus history and Whig... No, sorry in advance. Oh, sorry. sorry. (laughs) Not even in advance. Not even... (laughs) Didn't mean to interrupt you. You should probably say the sentence again. I apologize. (laughs) I mean, I'm not sorry, but like, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I was going to talk a little bit about these ideas of consensus history and Whig history because in the context of the U.S., Marxism or dialectical materialism hasn't really been a tool of analysis in sort of like the mainstream Mm. historical profession for very long. Ambria sort of mentioned earlier, like the great man theory of history, which is really dominated and sort of been involved with these other two ways of looking at history. So the idea behind like great man history is that stuff happens because important leaders make it happen. The idea is that not much goes on outside the halls of state power. Women are largely inconsequential. Slaves, indigenous people, paupers, workers, the poor, they don't matter when it comes to shaping society. 
So alongside this belief in great men being the drivers of history are these two other ways of looking at the world that have also been really popular and that are like totally detached from the materialist angle we've been talking about. So one of these lenses, like I said, is Whig history, which is a theory of human development that suggests that we are just on a constant march towards progress. This might sound pretty familiar to people because a version of version of Whig history (laughs) is uh, pretty common in how people process the world on a day to day level, I think. And also, of course, in classrooms, I think to some extent it's harder to hold on to that conception in the modern era when like the threat of apocalyptic climate change hangs over our head at every moment. But it's definitely still around. Totally. I feel like when I so my undergrad was in environmental studies and reading about all of the fucking people who still think that progress will also solve the climate crisis is like a really specific faction of the world. Um, But like they're capitalists, right? Right. Like they're so drinking, even if they're not in the capitalist class, they've drank the Kool-Aid of capitalism so hard. And it's like a fucking toxic parasite on their brain that it's like brainwashed mass amounts of people into thinking that we can just continue business as usual and some sort of technology will save us or right. you know we like that life must progress in this positive way and that there's no possible alternative of like apocalypse right and it's like it's part of it is like a theory of the market where it's like you know if something's really a problem like if climate change were really a problem the market would find a way to solve it and mm-hmm. it's yeah real worrisome You see how pervasive this is, even with people being like, can you believe this happened in 2018? Yes. Right? And I'm like, what does that mean? What does that even mean? Like, can can this have happened in this year? Sort of like, you know, bad things only can happen in the 1940s, actually. Um, (laughs) And we really, it's like, you can catch yourself in that thinking, too. Like, it's so pervasive that, like, things are supposed to get better Mm -hmm. as time goes on. Yeah, for sure. So, like, Whig history, in a way, though, is, like, kind of like Marxism in this sort of the sense that Hope was pointing out and that it sort of posits that there are defined stages through which history moves, but it's not Marxist and it's, like, pretty much complete lack of analytical drive. So consensus history is kind of, like, related to all of this, but in many ways it's more oppositional to historical materialism. So this is like the second kind of type of history I'd like to talk about. Consensus history dominated historians' views of the past, especially during the 1950s and the 1960s. And the fundamental basis of this whole ideological conceit is that America is a nation built on shared values. Mm. And the conflict has been like pretty much minimal throughout U.S. history, uh, which... LOL. Um, Yeah, it's fucking ridiculous. (laughs) Also, like, the entire U.S. self-identifier is individualism. Mm -hmm. Like, (laughs) it's not, it's like, anyway. Yeah, but we all agree. Yeah, 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 right? Yeah, consensus history, it's so explicitly anti-Marxist, and it's also, like, just, just wrong, you know? Like... Um, it's so funny to me because, like, the, the Civil War was, like, the exception that proved the rule. Like, that was the one great conflict in American history. And, like, once we got over that, like, it, it was smooth sailing. Anyway, the 60s sort of marked the decline of consensus history, um, as you might expect. Like, the Civil Rights Movement erupted and mainstream historians 
sort of taking the lead that activists had sort of taking the path that activists had sort of paved, started to pursue history from below. So integrating racial minorities, women, the poor, etc., as actual historical actors, very different from the great man theory that had been driving history sort of from whatever perspective people were writing it. Of course, it's important to note that there were definitely explicitly Marxist historians before this. So Philip Foner comes to mind. He and his brother Jack Foner, also a historian, were blacklisted from the profession for being communists. If that name sounds familiar, they are modern historian Eric Foner's uncle and father, respectively. And then, of course, there's W.E.B. Du Bois, who was a Marxist historian and also the greatest of all time. Um back when mainstream academia was completely white and he was just basically blocked out from the mainstream halls of historical thinking. So like all the way back in the 1930s, he wrote this book called Black Reconstruction, which talks about the aftermath of the Civil War and how former slaves organized their labor and went on general strikes. Like very much a focus on the emerging working class in the South in the aftermath of slavery, black, but but also white, and how former slaves, especially collectively, were able to seize some measure of power, which like, if you think about it, is like the ultimate negation of this great, uh, great man theory of history. And like nowadays, Marxist historians are a dime a dozen, like super common, very popular way of looking at things. Although I could talk for hours about the new capitalism and slavery uh, line of thinking, which is just like totally destroyed any meaning of capitalism by saying that everything was capitalism. But I won't do that. But they're very anti-Marxist. But despite this like upcoming trends, it's definitely been adopted. Historical materialism, dialectical materialism is very much like mainstream historical analysis today thank goodness totally yeah. still wanting more women marxist historians even though they're a dime a dozen just saying. <laughs> so i'm ready for you kellen i'm ready <laughs> so like why do we need dialectical materialism like why are we even talking about this why is it useful so dialectical materialism is a helpful and comprehensive tool to understand how societies operate so under capitalism there are two primary agents of production the worker who engages in the act of production, and the capitalist who is the owner of the means of production. These two classes have opposing interests because each is fighting for control over a greater share of what is produced. Workers want higher wages, capitalists want higher profits. Thus, these two classes represent a dialectical relationship in that their conflict between each other represents the dialectical internal conflict of the society as a whole. Yeah. Dialectical materialism is also useful for socialists and leftists because it allows us to reject the liberal idea that bourgeois democratic society is harmonious in nature and that all members of society are equal. So, yeah. I think that's really important because a lot of people don't really understand the differences between um, liberals and leftists. Mm-hmm. Um, shout out to Revolution Left podcast. They just had an amazing episode on this specific difference, but it's super important. And I urge you to check out that podcast. It's very good. But anyway, so it exposes these internal contradictions of capitalism and its inherent instability. There is a fundamental and continuous conflict internal to each capitalist nation and the capitalist world as a whole. 
the class struggle. Yeah, and you can definitely see how this way of thinking, this idea that it's inherent to dialectical materialism, that there are these there are two opposing forces that have to clash and that same contradiction is inherent in capitalism. But you can mm-hmm. see that like certain ways of looking at the world, like the you know, consensus history, Whig history, whatever, their purpose is to paper over class distinctions, basically, like to paper over inherent contradictions and struggles. And in so doing, these ways of looking at the world only serve the capitalist class, you know, all that sort of these different perspectives that diverge from dialectical materialism, from Marxism, you know, however you want to look at it, serve the interests of the ruling class and not the working class, because it obscures like the fundamental inescapable conflicts between people that own the means of production and the workers. Totally. (laughs) I feel like we don't talk about Trotsky a lot on this podcast, just as like, I don't know, he he just hasn't really come up as much as, you know, Marx and whatever. So I, but Trotsky has a lot to say about dialectical materialism as well. And he kind of contrasts it to this thing that he calls vulgar thinking. So he considers anything that is static or that doesn't take into account a larger view. So, for example, if you think of a tree and you only think of it standing by itself without thinking of it as it being a sapling previously or how it relates to groundwater, but if you're only thinking of the physical tree itself, he considers that vulgar thinking. So when he contrasted vulgar and dialectical thinking, he wrote, Dialectical thinking is related to vulgar in the same way that a motion picture is related to a still photograph. The motion picture does not outlaw the still photograph, but combines a series of them according to the laws of motion. So if we're to take his claim seriously, it's extremely important for us to understand dialectical materialism and dialectics in general as we exist in this world, because we have to understand the connected and related nature, both historically and in a modern context. Beautiful. <laughs> truly, truly beautiful Thanks, stuff. Mike Trott. Thanks, Leon. <laughs> Alrighty then. I think we're going to take a quick music break.
and we're back. So we're going to continue the discussion about dialectical materialism, and we thought we would just kind of toss some questions out to each other and then talk through them. So my first question for everybody is, how did you first learn about dialectical materialism? Well, I read Marx in school in my undergrad a few years ago, and it it was the first thing I read by him was like just some essays in the Marx Engel reader, Marx Engels reader. But I would say I really started to understand it more from reading Paulo Freire. I guess he doesn't specifically talk about like, he doesn't use the words dialectical materialism, but his work is all about basically human autonomy and like what it means to act in the world and um, what it means for marginalized people to recognize their ability to take action and to do that. So I think I really started to develop this idea about taking action and what it means to take action and what it means to, you know, when you're not taking action. And I think that's a hard lesson to learn today because I feel like our society tries to confuse us um, in many Mm -hmm. ways by making us think that we're taking action when we're not actually doing anything. I don't know. Now Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm rambling and I don't know how to get out of it. Um, So I'll just end it there. (laughs) (laughs) It was a brilliant ramble. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't feel like a ramble to me. Okay. Nope. Same. I was like, I don't know where I'm at or where I'm going or how I got here (laughs) or how to end it. (laughs) Who's the concussed person? (laughs) I was like five seconds away from just pulling out Pedagogy of the Oppressed and reading from it and being like, all right. (laughs) It's all here. Yes. The answers. I feel like I seriously started learning about this somewhat recently. You know, when I kind of started going down the rabbit hole of being a socialist, I started reading different socialist texts. But honestly, I got to give a shout out to my partner, Mike, because he's like an economics master's student and he's like really broken this down for me. And I don't think I would have a good grasp on it without his help. So... Thanks. Good job, Mike. Thanks, Yay. Mike. You turned her into a smarty pants. She is always smarty pants. She didn't need yeah. Mike Thank for you. That. Thank you, Kellen. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> so for me, I didn't really learn much about it ever in school. I didn't take a lot of poli-sci classes in college. And not the history classes I took, because I was a Spanish major, were mostly... Um, like around Spanish history and Latin American history. Um, And surprisingly, we didn't learn about dialectical materialism uh, in those classes. (laughs) So I didn't really start reading about it until I got more involved doing socialist organizing um, and readings there. And it's been mostly self-learning, but it's, I haven't really had anybody else to talk about it with. So it's just been kind of hanging out around in my head for a long time. So this is a fun conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely, like, read, we read, like, little snippets of Marx in, like, high school, I want to say, but I don't know that I absorbed what? it. Yeah. That's insane. Oh, well, I had um, a very intense, like, world history teacher my freshman year mm. of high school mm. who liked to give us, I mean, it was, like, it would be, like, a, a page front and back of, like, a, like, snippets from Plato or Marx or stuff like that, and I hated it, and then... I think I've mentioned on this podcast before that I swore to myself I would never take a philosophy class. And I went to college and there was like, there's a, requ- we had whack requirements. So like 
one of the, instead of it being like, okay, you have to take a history class, you have to take a math class, they had these terrible names, like you have to take a quantitative reasoning class. Um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And one of the requirements was, it was called the EC, but it was, what that was short for was epistemology and moral cognition. Um, (laughs) Which is, yeah, real dumb. And so I was like, okay, fine. So I took a political theory class. I don't think we even talked about Marx in that class, really. We, t- we spent a lot of time on, like, old Greek people, and I also hated that. Um, so I was, uh. like, really late for sure coming to theory because all of my, like, my the stuff that I had done with it was, like, pretty boring, I guess. Like, I hadn't found a way into it that was interesting to me. And, like, finally in grad school, I took a class called Histories of Capitalism, which Mm. was also really not my thing either. And I was surrounded by people that like clearly had been thinking about this stuff for a long time. So even that like didn't really take, but it was really when I started, when I had an intro to it, that was less just let's talk about theory for the sake of theory and like Mm. more like applying theory to historical analysis that I became Mm -hmm. so much more interested in it. So like, I really have to credit Barbara Fields, who's like, the OG Marxist historian, Barbara Fields, my advisor, Stephanie McCurry and Eric Foner. The three of them are like very much in the Marxist historical tradition. Steve Hahn, who taught my, my um, histories of capitalism class was also there is, is also sort of in that line. But um, there, this is sort of this branch of like 19th century U S history that is deeply rooted in materialism like takes takes analysis of labor systems very seriously like isn't connected to this other sort of this sort of very popular line of thinking about slavery and capitalism that says like slaveholders were hyper capitalists um and totally like divorces them from the means of production and like the laborers like how the laborers are actually related to the market all this kind of stuff that like really matters in marxism And so it was really for me, like, thinking through the problems I was already thinking through, but then having these tools in this language that I didn't really have before, you know, taking, I'm very much, like, oriented in the direction of granular evidence-based history. And that's, like, all well and good, but then you need to, like, you need sort of theory to make sense of it, you know? And so for me, I just needed to start being like, let me like look at what's on the ground really, really closely and then zoom out. And once I did that, like it all started to make a lot more sense. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Read Stephanie McCurry. (laughs) How has capitalism survived this long in spite of its internal contradictions? You know, one goal for myself is to really read more contemporary Marxist texts. Because I feel like I have this, because I went to a book where we, or a book, I went to a college where we read. (laughs) (laughs) I lived in a book for a while. Um, Good. I went to a college where we read so many old books. So I just kind of have this ongoing problem where, like, I know a lot about old stuff. And I'm like, Mm. I'm sure somebody is theorizing about this right now in a really important (laughs) way. I have no idea who it is or, like, what I should read. Like, one thing I've been thinking about a lot is, like, gentrification Mm. and how all... There was the white flight 
you know, here in Chicago and in many cities across the United States where white people went to the suburbs and people of color stayed in the city. And now we, we are seeing this, like, redevelopment of the city where you push those people of color back out. Mm-hmm. And I'm just thinking a lot lately about how capitalism recaptures degraded markets or like markets that aren't doing as well like these small markets that capitalism can kind of like come in and take over again and this also makes me think of rosa luxemburg who talked about who had has some amazing theories about why imperialism is necessary for capitalism to continue existing because Mm -hmm. it can sort of take over these new markets and in that way sort of continue expanding yeah i think i i just like going off of that really quickly like a big part of this for me is when those older theorists were thinking about this they had no idea the extent of globalization like that would come in the future and i don't think they could have predicted how exploitative but geographically spread out globalization would be Mm -hmm. and I think that that's a big piece of how it survived this long is it's just kind of like spread itself out and gone beyond these national borders which when like borders in my opinion are worthless and meaningless but as state governments still hold on to like the need for borders while economies are not held to their borders right like Mm -hmm. It, because there's that contradiction of statehood versus what economies, how they are webbed globally, and, like, that in and of itself creates this, like, new version of late-stage capitalism that we all know and hate. <laughs> I had one more thought, but I didn't want to cut you off completely, Ambria, if you had more after that. No, I'm done. Continue. Okay. I also, even though her writing can be pretty neolib, I wanted to give a shout out to Naomi Klein because both of her works, uh, The Shock Doctrine and This Changes Everything, Capitalism versus the Climate. In both of those books, like she talks about disaster capitalism, which is another thing that has really amplified why capitalism still exists, right? Like when we have these larger disaster phenomena occurring around the world, now we see massive corporations coming in and profiting off of that disaster. And so capitalism is like a fucking sleuthy snake that is, and I hate also personifying capitalism, right? Mm, Like it's it's capitalists, like these Mm -hmm. capitalists who are driven by insatiable profit at the expense of others and the environment are reinforcing and amplifying this. And I think Naomi Klein's work really talks about regardless of, you know, she's she's a climate change activist. So regardless of, in her example, the obvious decay of the planet, capitalism finds a way to like, or the capitalist class finds a way to take advantage of that and use it to continue and amplify and almost speed up this like horror across across the world. Yeah, and I think that kind of like leads me to the answer I would give for like how has capitalism survived this long in spite of its internal contradictions is that the capitalist system is really adept at evolution. You know, that, that and it, I think this links together what both you and Ambria were saying, which is, like, it, there's an incredible flexibility to the system, and there's this constant, just, like, adaptation that co-ops 
anti-capitalist movements and the system is is flexible enough that it can neuter those those movements and sort of bring them in to form you know maybe a loyal opposition type thing you know so we've talked about like the commodification of feminism for example like Mm. feminism should be a radical anti-capitalist idea you know and decades ago feminism you know, as exclusive as it was in many ways, still was like really threatening to the patriarchal capitalist system of like the early 20th century. And so ways in which it was neutered, I mean, that's kind of a gendered term, but ways in which it was neutered include... Rendered neutral. Rendered, (laughs) yeah, include like the co-optation of women's rights advocates into like granting granting upper middle class women the right to vote slowly like Mm. in different states for example or you know when the when in the united states or in britain like women got the right to vote you know that was primarily a white women's thing you know and then Mm. the women's rights movement sort of loses a lot of steam after that and there were some more, obviously we've talked, we've talked about like Emma Goldman as an example of like somebody who's like a really radical women's rights activist who, you know, wasn't content to like just have white women advance, you know, who had like really radical critiques of the system. You know, it was easier to hear her when there were upper class white women who were arguing for some of the same things. But as soon as they get the vote, you know, they kind of go away. And then you still have Emma Goldman, like, banging on the windows, yelling, like, this is not enough. But, like, no one's really listening anymore. And that's, like, that's a triumph of the capitalist system, you know, where you pacify the least radical, often the Mm. people who are already closest to the top, like, closest to the pinnacle of privilege. So, you know, upper middle-class white women take take them out of the equation make give them something that they want and then their critiques of the system will kind of fall away and we see this like time after time after time you know and even like Uh, liberals uh, right (laughs) right well exactly i mean like think about like this it was just recently announced whatever in like the last month that amazon and like Berkshire Hathaway or whatever, I don't even remember the companies, are, like, getting together to form some sort of new healthcare conglomerate, like, that's a direct result of radical advocacy, you know, and, like, capitalists recognizing that there is a potential breaking point and trying to head Mm -hmm. that breaking point off by offering concessions that could potentially de-intensify more radical calls for change. And that's sort of, that's what happens over and over and over again. And that is, that's dialectical materialism in action, you know, know, where you have thesis that is this like capitalist system as it exists and and antithesis that is radical demand for, you know, state-sponsored healthcare or whatever. And a synthesis that is, well, Amazon's going to take care of its workers better in theory, maybe, you know? Mm, And mm, like, mm -hmm. sometimes people are okay with that. And that's how capitalism preserves itself (laughs) hope do you want to add to this or no i think you guys have pretty well covered how capitalism has survived this long i feel like we solved it today (laughs) so do we think the class struggle can be resolved if so what do we think the new synthesis will be Uh (laughs) what what would that even mean yeah i don't know 
I feel like this is kind of what we're working towards, right? Like we want to have a, a new society where it's non-hierarchical. It's the class structure has faded away. I think it's really hard for people to imagine what that would be, which is why also I think capitalism has survived for mm-hmm. this long, yeah. right? Like when you try to envision a socialist society outside of any sort of money, you know, outside of any sort of currency, outside of pretty much all structures that we exist within now to the to a large extent. And so I think this is like in some ways an impossible question because I think if we knew this, it would be easier to have a pathway forward. But maybe, I don't know, maybe I wanted to ask it in case y'all had much more insight than I do. <laughs> well, I guess... Well, the... Oh, go ahead, Ambria. Well, according to Marx, the the question is, or the answer is supposed to be yes. Now, a lot of people since Marx have argued that the dialectic is unending. Yeah, that's what um, I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that perhaps class struggle can be overcome, but, you know, conflict never will. There will right. always be groups that are marginalized, uh, that are fighting for, you know, their own vision of the world, things like that, that there will always be these struggles going on because that's the nature of reality. So I don't know. <laughs> there's a, mm-hmm. there's disagreement. There's, yeah, there's I was going to say there's that, a lot. that, like, yeah, it, the, the nature of dialectics is that, it, like, it, it's continually, you know, the reality is continually being revised by the people who exist within it, you know? And Mm -hmm. so, like, I think Marx's idea was that, like, you know, the class struggle is resolved in communism, and, like, that's the end point. We finally get there. And, like, I I totally agree with what Ambria said, which is, like, you know, maybe, maybe there's a way to end class struggle, and we're definitely, like, the ideal sort of socialist world is one in which you don't have class struggle because you eliminate classes, But I also think that, like, you know, just think about the way, like, if you go get beers with, like, leftist guys and, like, the the Mm -hmm. arguments that they have about the most mundane shit, like, we take over, you know, like, socialism reigns and then we still are having these arguments, you know, like, that's not gonna change. How many yards of linen does it take to make a coat? Well, like, you know, maybe I want a longer coat than you do. And then like that sparks an argument. Not mm-hmm. me specifically. I think that's a dumb thing to argue about. But you know, there are going to be people who just want to argue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, yeah, that's a, you know, very reductive way to put it. But like, I think, I think what Ambry was saying is like totally right on is that, you know, society is constantly evolving, whether it's through new technology, it's like the growth you know whether it's it's like literally just we have more people in the world than we did 10 years ago whatever there are always going to be new challenges climate change is something that like we're going to have to deal with for generations you know if we start to reverse the the trajectory that we're on we still have a lot of work to do like restoring the world all of these things are things that like future generations are going to have to deal with regardless of, you know, whether or not they achieve some form of socialism. So I think that, yeah, yeah like conflict is, is on some level inevitable, I think. And like, it's just about how do you manage it? And like, what are the stakes, you know? And like, the stakes can be very, very different. We can lower the stakes to the point where like, everyone has what they need to survive. And the debates that we're having are about things that are less 
less important in a lot of ways. I picked a really bad time to quit coffee. I'm trying to quit coffee and I started on Friday. So my brain is like now just uh, warming up to this episode. Apologies to everybody. <laughs> oh, yeah, um, you're doing I'm, so great. I'm here now. Um, anyways, so, <laughs> um, I listening to what Kellen was saying and thinking about how this framework really does allow for change and for the complex interactions that happen when different changes are all occurring simultaneously. I think it's important to note that it's not just societal changes that we leave room for, but it's really global changes with things like climate change, um, happening or nuclear weapons, um, even like information just moving faster we may be like kind of changing and evolving in things at a much more rapid pace than in the past and so I think there's room there for class struggle to evolve also mm. and you know yeah, we, we could always have like a, an independence day kind of thing where there are aliens and then all of a sudden we might be a much more unified earth yeah <laughs> yeah that's fucking real <laughs> turn, turn it over to Will Smith yeah. Take care of it. Yeah. 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 Definitely. No way. You know the top guys would be cutting deals with those fucking aliens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think South American philosophers, there's a handful of them that I think have really added something new to Marxism, which is mm-hmm. like, and I, I think I'm going to have to reference Freire again here, which is the sense of how individual agency impacts Marxist theory and Mm -hmm. how like the freedom of human agency is always going to keep this process going, this dialectic process, like we've already said. Yeah. That's really interesting. Hmm. Hmm. Really makes you think. (laughs) True. (laughs) (laughs) So, I was just wondering, and this might be more for Kellen and Ambria Butler, you can opine as well. Do you think dialectical materialism itself should be taught in school more, like in high school or as part of regular history curriculum? Or maybe should the methodology be used more by teachers themselves? Yeah, that is an interesting question. It's hard. I think it's hard to think about like the way that we teach history, especially at, at like the college level, because it's not it's generally not taught like math where you have to start at one level, you know, or like chemistry where you, you have the introductory class and then you mm-hmm. move up, you know, it's, it's like very piecemeal. History departments tend to be global in their reach. Sometimes they are not doing a great job of being global, but they intend to be global. And so, you know, a lot of them sort of feel like putting somebody who does turn of the millennium, African history in the same classroom as, you know, somebody who's interested in the history of the internet, like, doesn't, they don't want to do that in a way. And I think that's too bad in in some sense. I think that, like, having, introducing students at, like, an early, early age or sort of an early point in their studies to historical methods and, like, what that really means could be really, really useful Cause like, I know, I, I mean, just for me, like what, what Marxist history really means was not something that became clear to me until like year two, probably of grad school. And I was like, you know, I have a vague sense and my vague sense got clearer over time, but nobody ever really sat me down and explained it. And I wouldn't have necessarily been able to explain it 
until, like I said, sort of like year two of grad school. And that's like, that's not great. And part of that is probably on me for my like stubborn avoidance of theory. But also I think it's because like there's, we haven't sort of as a discipline figured out a really good way of introducing students to these things in a like a thorough compulsory manner and kind of like left it up to students to figure that out for themselves. As for how you might teach it on a lower level, like, uh, you know, in, in high school or even like middle school or younger, um, I definitely do not have good answers to that question, but Ambria might. I would say yes, absolutely. As somebody who's going to be teaching grade schoolers, am I going to put the words dialectical <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. Probably not, but I think the idea that how we teach can be shaped by this methodology, mm. I think it was kind of mm. in Hope's question as well. Like, yeah. right, you said, should mm-hmm. the methodology be used more by teachers? Yep. And I would say, yes, absolutely. Simply engaging young people of any age. Um, there was actually an article I read by a woman who did like Frarian cultural circles in her, I think, first grade classroom. What does that um, mean? They had, yeah, I'll explain. Um, So she had these circles where they would just talk about the issues that they had in the classroom and questions that they had. She had them read stories about segregation, and they talked about it. And students noticed there was pull-out special ed. And some of the students noticed that the kids that were getting pulled out were all the children of color. And they they were annoyed that they were being separated from their friends, and they weren't sure why it was structured this way. So this teacher ended up creating with these students a new model of the special ed program where the special ed teachers would come into the classroom instead. Mm -hmm. Um, And also so would the gifted teachers. And so they did all of the classes all together. And then the teachers were all there to kind of help each other with the varying levels that the students were on. And this was actually in, in part designed by the students themselves. So this idea that as a teacher, you can show students, there's just so many opportunities, right, if we're, if we're given them in the classroom, to show students something about the world by allowing them to act on it, mm-hmm. right, and allowing them to research things and explore things and figure things out, because everything in our lives is so complicated. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. there's so much to understand about how my neighborhood operates right? And who controls what happens here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all these various things in my life that I come into contact with constantly, there's so much to find out about it. And I think that really is connected to dialectical materialism, right? You know, the way that my classroom is structured is not an act of nature. Yeah. My, cl- my classroom, as a, as a child, my classroom was created by somebody Um, People are making decisions about how that's structured. And understanding that is a huge leap forward in understanding dialectical materialism and Marxism and all these other theories that are connected to it. Yeah, I think Mm -hmm. just to build on what Amber is saying, which is like, so, so well said, like getting students sort of how do you apply it to a teaching method, getting students. I mean, there's sort of this cliche that's like question your instructors or whatever, but like getting them to understand what that really means and like that like every everything that they are all the information that they are presented is coming at them from like an individual or a group and that that it's constructed that it's not mm-hmm. like it's really hard 
you know, to say that something is a fact and like to question like, okay, how is this presented? Who, who wrote this document? Not just like in the way that they're sort of, I think, taught like Fox News has political bias or whatever, but like really to think about this sort of the subject, the author, to consider the sort of positionality of themselves and, and the world around them is an intervention in and of itself to think, to not just think about history, but to think about the way that history is taught and communicated. It's it like sort of very meta in a lot of ways, but that kind of meta analysis can be incredibly freeing for students. And so I think that focusing on that to have them kind of question their own environment and to think not just about the past and how the past was constructed, but to use those same ideas to think about themselves and the current moment is super, super important. And often is like something that, that students haven't experienced before, even at like the college level. And I am so glad that there are people like Ambry on the world who are going to be sort of introducing these ideas in, you know, in more digestible chunks to kids because like kids are so much more intelligent and curious and thoughtful that I think we so often give them credit for. Mm-hmm. And I'm, yeah, just like really glad that there are people in the educational system who are working like with that in mind. Totally. I'm just so glad Amber is a teacher. That's all. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So last question, are there books or other resources we'd recommend to listeners who want to learn more? I just wanted to give folks the website that I got most of the information that I shared in the beginning, which is marxists.org. There's a ton of information on there, and I pulled from three basic things. One is uh, they have a glossary on there, um, so I pulled some information from there. I pulled from Chapter 2 of Engels' Socialism, Utopian, and Scientific, uh, which talks about dialectics. <laughs> and then there's a pe- the piece from Trotsky is also through there as well. So they have, it's a he- massive website and I highly recommend going to it to learn more. Cool. I like the, um, the illustrated Marx reader. It's like a comic book version of Marx and it's like extremely intelligible. And just like a good, it would be probably fun for people to read who are like already very familiar with Marx and like very helpful for people who are not super familiar with Marx and like don't have the time or energy or interest to like sit down with a thousand pages of uh, capital. Mm. Ambria, I know you have suggestions. Pedagogy of the oppressed. Pedagogy of the oppressed. It's all I talk about. So yeah, you should read it so we can talk. There you go. Yeah. Don't slide into Ambria's DMs unless you have read Pedagogy of the Universe. <laughs> that's the yes. yes. Well, I guess that's our episode. Yep. Hell yeah, that's our episode on dialectical materialism. I loved Boom. it. We did it. We did it. We, we sure fucking did. As always, you can follow us on Twitter. You really should. At Season of the Bee. And you can email us if you want to tell us what you think about dialectical materialism like feel free to talk to us you can email us at season of the at gmail.com send um, us your music yeah send us your music especially if you're not a guy we have new merch, have new merch oh yeah it's super amazing check it out on our website season of you can rate review subscribe on itunes and give us your money on 
Patreon. Give us your money. We want it. <laughs> we need it. <laughs> Trying to make a podcast. <laughs> Hell yeah. Well, love y'all so much. Love you. Thanks for you. talking about this on a, on a Sunday morning. Love you. Bye. 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 Bye.